but we're going to be picking up for a, a one class fill-in. And so, you know, it's, it's difficult when you're trying to come up with a class idea where you just have one. You just have one topic you can talk about and try to fill it all in. So this morning we're going to be talking about Matthew chapter 5 in particular, Matthew chapter 5, specifically verses 3 through 12, talking about the Beatitudes. So it's Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 12 in particular. And what I would like for this morning to be, or to have a lot of, I guess is the best way of putting it, is discussion, since this is a topic probably at least we're fairly familiar with, some that we can kind of talk about. And the thing that I always like to say is, while there may be such thing as stupid questions, there's no such thing as stupid discussions. So we can talk about something and try to get it working a working out, because if there's questions that people have and there's topics they want to understand better, we're not wasting our time if we have to derail for a little bit to talk about that. So if you have any questions or any topics you want to bring up, we'll talk about those, and that really helps the class to go along. So let's start with uh, reading verse, uh, starting in verses 1 and 2, get some background here. He says, And seeing the multitudes, he went up on the mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying... So, Really elementary question for us. What just started here? What is Jesus starting in this passage? The Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount. This is the first major sermon that Jesus teaches. And it's really fascinating when you go through and look at how this passage is broken down and how verses, or chapters 5, 6, and 7 really flow because... For a sermon, we think about, oh, you have one topic, and you have several points that fill that one topic. But Jesus hits about every topic under the sun in chapters 5 through 7. And he deals with many different moral, uh, moral issues, but it's interesting he starts with the Beatitudes and starts with this discussion. So if someone could read verse 3 in particular, please, starting in verse 3. All right, is that Matthew chapter 5, verse 3? That's Matthew 3, verse 3. <laughs> <laughs> Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's always funny when something like that happens. I had that happen in a sermon one time, and I had about every single eye in the auditorium going, what, what are you doing? I don't even remember what the passage was in particular they were reading, but someone came up later and said it had something to do with disease, and we were talking about prophecies, so I don't know how that happened, but it was the same kind of idea. I just flipped the, flipped the verse in the chapter. So. But we're starting off with chapter verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Poor in spirit. Humble is a good way of looking at it. It's understanding our lack. It's an understanding of our lack of something. So I understand I am in need of the Lord. So yes, humility has a lot to do with it because I'm saying I'm not greater than God. I'm not this highly elevated person that I don't need anything. I understand I have a lack and I need God. I need His aid. So let's look at Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Specifically, let's look at verse 12. If someone could read that, please. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12. 
that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Absolutely. So he's crying out to the Lord. He says these people were separated from God at first. They were alienated. What does it mean to be alienated? Alienated. Separated. Separated from. Ostracized is another word we might use. You might have heard this a lot in the news of the idea of aliens being people who are illegally coming into the country or people from other countries. It's not that they are, you know, the green or gray men coming around saying, take me to your leader. This is a group of people that are not a part of this particular group. Aliens just anyone outside of. I would be alienated from a medical staff, and I can promise you, you don't want me there. <laughs> alienated from that, because that's not what I am. I'm not a part of that group. I have not done the steps necessary to be a part of that group. So the same thing is true. He said, you were once alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, alienated from God's people, because you did not take the steps to get there. Now, once they became a member of that group, he says, you once were that way, but you understood your need, and you went to God. You took the steps necessary to become a part of his church. The same thing is mentioned here. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Theirs is the kingdom of God. They understand their need. They go to the Lord. They're the ones that actually make up that group. Think about it for a moment. If we did not understand our need for the Lord, how many of us would be here? Probably none of us. If we didn't understand our need for the Lord, why on earth would I put the effort in? We don't just naturally do stuff that we don't see value in. It becomes very tedious, very difficult. I know I'm not as far removed from high school as some, but I remember those assignments that felt absolutely pointless. You're just sitting there looking at this saying, why on earth do I need to know the chemical composition of bathwater? Why do I need to know this? This makes no sense. And so when you're going into it, it's very difficult to just force yourself to do it because it's not something you see value in. Now, if I see value in God, if I see value in what he's asked me to do, then I'm going to do not only what's necessary, but as much as possible to get every detail. I'm going to work as hard as I can to understand more and more and more. Not because I'm just thinking I need to be this great person in the church, because Jesus himself said he who thinks he's the greatest actually is going to be the least. That's the way that this is functioned. So he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. See, God is the only source of hope and courage in the world. Think about it really carefully. What else would people probably say gives them hope? I just throw out some ideas here. What is something in the world that people say gives them hope? Medical, Medical people. Yeah, the medical profession, how they're advancing and they're understanding and they're developing more and more drugs and more and more treatments for some of these serious ailments that we have. So that, that gives someone hope, right? Okay, I can live longer. But the reality is we also understand that a lot of those medical treatments have serious side effects. And so, yes, I might live longer, but it might not be a great quality of life to do it. So there's going to be downsides to everything we come up with. Someone might have hope and say, well, the United States has a powerful military, so we're not going to be messed with. That gives me hope. Well, for now, for now that might be true, but maybe down the line someone stops being afraid of that. You know, so everything we can come up with that says that gives me hope 
it's got some taint to it. Something's just not quite right. I can have hope that one day housing prices are going to go down. But where's the, it will probably come up again some other time. They fluctuate throughout time. So, yeah, it might be good for now, but it won't be later. The things that I have hope in, they have a taint to it. But what if I put my hope in God? If I put my hope, my trust, my faith in God, well, God doesn't change. We talked about in the book of Titus chapter 1 that He doesn't lie. So if He doesn't lie and He doesn't change, in fact, in the book of James, He says that He has no shadow of turning. There's no even impression that He's going to change. That's a constant I can put faith in. I can believe in that, have trust in that. Paul understood his need for God as well. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Someone read verse 10, please. So Paul understood where he was before in his need. He understood. He said, it's by the grace of God I am what I am. Paul wasn't saying, have you looked at me lately? I definitely have all this figured out. He said, it's by the grace of God I'm able to accomplish what I accomplished because he understood that before I was separated from God. He understood he had a need for the Lord. He had a need to accomplish what God had told him. Remember in the book of Acts where he was standing before God, God spoke to him on the road to Damascus, and Saul is sitting there saying, Who are you, Lord? And that light from heaven says to him, I am Jesus whom you persecuted. Think about the position of Saul at that moment. You're going to persecute a group of people you believe full well are heretics. You believe with all your heart these people need to be destroyed. And as you're on this road, ready to go, you're probably mentally preparing yourself. Okay, we need to start on this street and we need to work to this point. You're probably running through a plan in your mind of how you're going to accomplish this. You're making sure you've got the paper situated, making sure you've got the authority to do what you're about to do. And as you're going about this, a light shines from heaven so bright that everyone else around you just disappears. And you're face-to-face with this super bright light that's talking to you. And on top of that, that light identifies himself as the leader of the group of people that you're attacking. That you know is dead. How many people do you think are going to have confidence in that moment? I know I'm not raising my hand for that one. It's, If I'm standing there seeing this light from heaven that's talking to me and telling me I'm the very person that you're standing against, I'm scared. And so he goes to Damascus because the the Lord tells him, go to Damascus, it will be told you what you must do. He understood he had a need because throughout that period of time, what was he doing? While he was waiting for Ananias to come speak to him, what what does the Bible tell us he was doing? He was praying. He was praying. He's trying to appeal to God, saying, okay, I'm wrong. What do I need to do? What do I need to do? What do I need to do? I need to know what to do. 
Because remember, it was a few days before Ananias came and spoke to him. So for a few days, Saul of Tarsus is sitting there just desperately trying to understand what God wants him to do because he said to go to Damascus and it will be told you what to do. It's a desperate wanting to understand what to do. He understood his need for God. He was poor in spirit. God blesses those who are poor in spirit and stands against those who hold themselves higher than the Lord or others. In Proverbs chapter 6, we read of the seven things that God hates, and one of them is a proud look. God hates a proud look. He sees pride as something that is a negative, but why? The world tells us today you're to be proud of yourself, right? You're to be proud of what you're doing. So why would pride in that sense be a bad thing? What does pride tell God? Pride elevates us to a position we don't belong in. That's what it does. Pride elevates us to a position we do not belong in. Because oftentimes pride elevates us over our fellow man. I am better than. Here's the reality. Christianity does not make us better than everyone else. It makes us safer than anyone else. There's a difference. There's a difference. Because do, when we become Christians, do we stop sinning automatically? We're done. No more sin in our life. No. Can the world sin? Yes. We can sin. Therefore, we're not better than, because if I was better than, I could stop sinning altogether and never have any issue. I could never make a mistake anymore. But because I'm a Christian, I have more safety. Because when I make those mistakes, when I stumble, when I fall, I can go to God and I can say, please help me. See, it's not about what I am. It's not about my own power or my own ability. I'm not elevated to the point where I can save myself or I have some magical powers that I can use. In the, uh, in the New Testament, we read of people be, that had the Holy Spirit laid upon them and they were able to perform miracles, but that didn't even make them better because remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 12? He said he was going to show them a better way. What was that better way? 1 Corinthians 13, love. He said there's going to come a time when those miraculous gifts are going to fade away. Why? You're going to have the complete Word of God. You're going to have the Word of God that you can sit and you can reason and you can study. You don't need these miraculous gifts in order to confirm the Word, which is what the purpose was initially. When I'm performing miracles, what am I telling the people of that day? I didn't have Matthew chapter 5. I could say, turn here and listen to the words of Jesus. I had to tell you what I believe to be true, specifically through inspiration from God or from the teaching of the apostles, and I'm telling you as an audience what God is saying, what proof do I have? What proof do I have that I'm telling you the truth? But if I'm teaching you these things and I say, bring your sick here and I magically heal them, what are you going to think? Okay, this guy's from God. Because only God has the ability to do these things. Only God has the ability to cast out devils. Jesus dealt with this idea because some people wanted to say that, God, or that Jesus was casting out devils by the power of the devil. And Jesus said, a house divided against itself cannot stand. Why would the devil work against his self-interest? If he's casting out devils, then that's standing against him. And Jesus is saying, a house divided against itself is not going to stand. That can't function. 
So the miraculous gifts were used to try to confirm the word of God, to confirm what they were standing for. But now we have the word of God that we can reason together. We can say, here's the words of Christ. Here was the words of Peter. Here's the words of Paul. And as Don talked about a couple weeks ago, we can even confirm that the Bible, or last week, excuse me, we can confirm that the Bible is true because there's so much evidence to tell us that this is the word of God. That what is said here is true. So we understand that he is the source of this and he helps those who are in need. And we have this, poor, this poverty in spirit because we understand that it's not about you and me. It's not about how good we are or how much we can do. I was talking with Don on one occasion about this and I don't even know if he might remember. This was a long time ago. But we were discussing it about how as preachers, oftentimes you have more access to study because you went to school. That's really the biggest difference, by the way. That was, that was it. You've gone to school for two years. Don and I both went to the same uh, preaching school, so we had the same amount of time to study. So you had access to that more study time. And we were discussing how there's some people who make, th- when they get out of school and when they have that study, that there's this pride that comes along with it of, oh, I know so much, therefore I'm so good. And Don and I were talking about when we got out of school, we both felt the same way. We don't know anything. <laughs> we studied for two years and we realized that we did not even scratch the iceberg on everything that was in the God's Word. But when people have that pride, they're elevating themselves to a position of saying, I'm better than, and God said, that's not true. That's not acceptable. You have to understand your need. See, Paul gave himself over to the Lord in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. What did he say? I'm crucified with Christ. He had put himself down so that God could be elevated. See, there's an inverse relationship with man and God. If man elevates himself, God is diminished. If God is elevated, man is diminished. Because if I say that God is how he is, then what am I but a speck of dirt? He has more power in his pinky finger than I have in my entire existence. But if I'm saying, well, I am so great, then God's value in my life is diminished. God's inherent value doesn't change at all, but his value to me changes. So that's what he's dealing with here. That's why God stands against this is because in order for me to be proud, I have to remove God from the equation. I have to say he doesn't matter. See, Paul understood, and Paul had more reason to boast than many Christians do because of all that he had done in our own minds. But Paul understood, he said, it is by the grace of God that I'm where I am. So this poor in spirit, this is a fundamental part of Christianity because it's a fundamental understanding, I have a need. I have a need that needs to be fulfilled. But let's look at the next verse, verse 4. Someone could read that, please. Verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Actually, before we get into this, were there any comments or questions from the previous section? Anything anyone wants to bring up before we move on? Speak now or forever hold your peace. Nothing? Okay. So, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. We don't tend to think of 
being blessed when we're mourning. That doesn't just really register with us, because what does that word blessed mean? We talked about this a couple times, but what, what does the word blessed mean? Happy. To be happy or to be considered happy. That's really what that word means. So let's read that in the passage here. He says, Happy are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. That doesn't sound right. How can you be happy in that? When we mourn, we have access to something. If I don't ask for something, am I ever going to receive it? Now, asking can come in a lot of different ways, too. Because if I tell someone I want something without asking them to do it, that's still, in a way, asking. Saying, man, I really wish I could get that thing. It's a form of asking. And if someone cares about me and they say, that, oh, I want to get them that thing to be nice, well, okay, that's really awesome. But if I have a need and I don't voice that need, is it ever going to be met? Maybe accidentally. But never intentionally. Right now, one of the big movements in counseling for relationships is this idea that people don't want to voice their needs. Well, I'm just bothering them if I, if I tell them. And over and over again, they'll say, well, if you don't voice that need, it's never going to be met, and that builds resentment. See, we have a relationship with God where we can ask Him for what we need. We have a relationship as a church that we can help ask for help with needs. As we mentioned in the sermon, or as I mentioned in the sermon this morning, this is a group of people where if you ask for something, you might get 25 of that thing because they'll all go <laughs> to try to meet that need. But that's the way that the church was designed to be. God cares for us in our moments of pain. There's things we can do to comfort that. Let's look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It's 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And whoever gets there first, so they could read that. Uh, 4.13, sorry. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. All right. And then I'm going to add verse 14 onto that as well. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. So what's the entire premise here? What's Paul talking about in this passage? What's he trying to deal with? Someone who hasn't answered yet. Let's try to get that set up. Comfort. He's dealing with a lack of it. These people were sorrowing about the loss of their loved ones as those who have no hope. See, there was a fundamental misunderstanding of what was taking place. How can the world look at death without God? What is the, what is the kind of understanding in the world without God? What does death look like to them? What was that? Like Rover dead all over. 
Finished. Over. That's the end of the relationship for good. I've cared about this person for a long time and this is it. But as a Christian, what does it mean? Do what? You're going to a better place, but more than that, I can meet you there. That's the fundamental difference right there. Death for the world is permanent separation. Permanent separation. No chance. But in Christianity, when someone dies, they're going off to a better place, as was mentioned, and I can meet you there. This is exactly what David said when his son died. What was the attitude that his servants thought was going to happen? What, what did they think David was going to do when his son died? Does anyone remember this account? What did they say? They, they were shocked because they thought he was going to basically want to die. They said, he's been sitting by his bedside all this time. His son is dead He's not going to be able to take the grief. And after his son dies, David gets up, cleans himself up, gets a new change of clothes, and goes and eats. And to them, they're sitting back going, wait a minute. David, let's clarify this for a second. Your son died. Why are you taking this so well? Why are you getting up and acting like nothing ever happened? And David says a very wise statement. That I can't bring him back to me, but I can go to him. I can go to him. See, David understood this exact point. He wasn't sorrowing like someone who had no hope because David understood, yes, it's a separation, it hurts, it's painful, it's difficult, but I can go to him. We don't worry and, well, we might worry for some parents, but as parents, they're not going to sorrow like they've lost their child when they move a state away. Why? Why are they not going to sorrow about that? You can go to them. You can go to them. They might be too busy to come down there from time to time, but you can go to them. It's not a permanent separation. So I'm not going to treat it as such. It might be difficult because that distance is painful in some situations because you want them to be close to you. But it's painful for that point but I can still go to them. I can still get in my car and I can travel to go see them, therefore it's not going to hurt me as much. Is it really that much different when someone goes to heaven? It's not really a whole lot different. It might be a longer duration. It might be 10, 15, 20 years before we're able to see them again, but we're able to see them again. If we're living the life that was faithful to Christ, and if they lived a life that was faithful to Christ, we have nothing to be concerned about. Like we said, that doesn't diminish the grief. Now, I want to make that very clear. That doesn't diminish the grief that you feel. It still hurts. It's incredibly painful. But we're not to sorrow as those who have no hope, because we have hope that we're going to see them again. He says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. They will be comforted. They have people who can reach out to them, but also they can find comfort in the Lord, and they can find comfort in what He has to say. 
If David had comfort in his loss, I can have comfort as well. It's the same, or it's a similar idea here. Jesus cares for the needs of his family. Let's look at John chapter 19. That's John chapter 19. Specifically, verse 26. Now, based for context sake, this is Jesus on the cross. And let's notice what takes place, starting in verse 25. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to his disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. Let's not miss the gravity of what just took place there. What, what did Jesus just say? Well, let's start for a better point here. Who did he say this to? John. The disciple who Jesus loved, John. What, his closest friend or one of his closest friends. What did he just tell John about Mary? What was that? What? This is now your mother. He says, you treat this woman as you would your own mother. Jesus is on the cross, suffering in the greatest agony, or one, probably one of the most agonizing deaths that mankind has ever devised. And he looks down, and what is his, what is his thought? I'm taking care of my own. I'm taking care of my own. And what does it say that John did? From that day forward, what did it say? He took her to his own home. John took what Jesus said, and he took it to the farthest extent it could go. Jesus voiced for Mary what she wasn't voicing for herself. She needed to be taken care of. She needed to be provided for. And he told John to be that need, to fill that need, to take care of it. Jesus takes care, God takes care of his own people. So that's what he's telling them here. He says you can find comfort in that because you're mourning, you're asking for what you need, and it will be met, it will be taken care of. Now let's look at the next verse. Any comments or questions for that section? Yeah, absolutely. For those who couldn't hear, uh, Larry was discussing the analogy that was made about taking a trip in that idea of grief. And really kind of to add to it as well, 
if a child were to move to, say, the other side of the country, it's expensive to fly. <laughs> it costs a lot to take that trip. It's difficult to take that trip. And with the way that work schedules are, I was talking to a friend of mine about this just the other day. We, had, we were a very close-knit group that graduated from, from school. And we talked about when we got out of school, or we were like, well, yeah, we're going to be able to hang out. We're going to do some stuff. You know, we might take some trips together and things of that nature. No. <laughs> it's hard enough trying to get adults together <laughs> that just have regular jobs. Preacher schedules are wild. <laughs> you have no idea when you're going to be able to do stuff. So you don't even have a guarantee when you move to separate parts of the country that you're ever going to see each other again on this earth. So it can be long durations of time before you're ever able to see someone you care about. So kind of along those lines, it's, very, it's an analogy that kind of helps to explain something that's hard to put into words. It's hard to explain. But just as was mentioned, it can be difficult to take those, those journeys. There's difficulties we have to overcome, and there's no guarantee you're going to get there, as Larry was talking about. So even though we have that mindset of, oh, I can get there, that's true. It's true. I can get there. I have the ability to get there, but there's no guarantee that I'm going to get there. In Christianity, though, if I'm following after Christ, I'm going to face difficulties. I'm going to face struggles. The journey might be delayed. But if I continue in the light as He is in the light, then I have a form of a guarantee I can get there. I can be with that person. So that's a really good point to be bringing out for this section. And I promise you, we are not going to finish the Beatitudes this morning. So we're going to hit another one. We got, I think, four, three minutes. Okay, three minutes to hit the next one. So someone could read verse 5. Blessed are the meat, for they shall inherit the earth. This one is one of my favorites. I, I love this section because it's one of the most misunderstood. <laughs> what does the word meek mean? Anyone got a definition of the word meek? What was it? Lowly. Lowly is a good definition. The best definition I've heard for the word meek, strength under control. Strength under control. There's a statement that has been, I think it's a fairly accurate comparison. I'm sure many of us have seen someone who is an absolute monster of a man we talk about. Just a very big guy, very tall guy, very strong. And you go talk to the person and you think, why are you just like this super calm person? They're not very loud, very boisterous people. They're kind of unassuming for the most part. That's what I think of when I think of wheat or of meek. That guy could kill me <laughs> easily. But he's mild-mannered. He controls himself. As Christians, we are to be meek people. But we're not to be weak people. There's a strong difference between those two things. How can I control something I don't have? If, if meekness means strength under control, how can I control something I don't have? That's not the case. At that point, I'm just being mild-mannered. I'm being nice because I can't do anything else. I can't stand up for myself. I can't protect myself. Friends, we cannot be weak in God's Word. 
We're not nice to people just because we can't talk to them about it. We control ourselves. We pick our battles because we can stand and fight when we need to. But we choose not to when it's unnecessary. That's the difference. It says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. We don't think about that for the most part because conquerors are generally not meek people. (laughs) They say, I want, I'm going to take. That's not self-control. That's not controlling your strength. That's saying, I want it and I have the power to take it, therefore I take it. That's the opposite. Which is similar to what Jesus did over and over again because God takes the world's understanding of something and turns it upside down, which I think is interesting that in the book of Acts they describe Christians as those who turn the world upside down. Because what they teach sounds like opposite world to the people who live on earth. Because our understanding is totally different. We think might makes right. We think that you are to help yourself over somebody else. We think that those who are weaker tend to be below someone who's stronger. But Jesus taught the exact opposite of all of those things. So he says that meek shall inherit the earth. We are not weak, we're not timid, but we are to be strong, confident, and bold. That's what God describes as Christians. Christians are not to be people that people forget about. I told the congregation in South Arkansas when I was there, and it's a, it's a statement that really kind of haunted me when I heard it the first time. This preacher asked a question. He said, if your doors were to close today, would anybody notice? Would anybody notice? Or would that just fade off into history? He said, Christians are to be people that when they close those doors, it has an impact. It has an impact. Either because the town is celebrating because we finally got rid of that group that was driving us nuts... or because they're hurt because those people were such good people. They cared for those who were in need. They met the needs of those who were around them, and they were just trying to help people be saved. Christians are to be meek people. And we didn't even get to finish that point. But that's where we'll pick up whenever the next time is. Next fill-in class, I guess, is where we'll pick up next time. But thank you guys for your attention.